We want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report podcast with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in business, tech, and media. And today's episode is sponsored by Publishers Clearinghouse, the leading media and commerce company serving America's heartland. Today, joining us is Belinda Smith, marketing and diversity activist. Let's jump in and get to know Belinda. Belinda, welcome. How are you? What, what? Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're, we're excited to have you. We're uh, sponsored. We're all official. I love it. Doing what we can, and we're grateful for these sponsors. You know yeah. it. So thanks to Publishers Clearinghouse again. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you, Belinda, tell us a little bit about your background. Where are you from? Where were you born and raised? And tell us a little bit about your family. Oh. <laughs> um, so we have three hours for this section? or We do. We do. <laughs> Oh, man, this is the part I usually try to not tell anyone. Um, Let's see. My dad is from Oklahoma. My mom is from Arkansas. So I grew up with the two of them berating people from Oklahoma and Arkansas. I feel like I have a lot of good jokes about, about both states. My dad was a salesman when I was younger. And when he was promoted, we would always move to a different state. So we moved around quite a bit. But I've lived in St. Louis on three separate occasions, and that's where I learned how to drive and learned that I was really good at craps. So I tell people that I, I grew up in St. Louis, so I'm a, I'm a Midwesterner, moved to New York with my now husband then boyfriend about 10 years ago. And uh, yeah, we've been, we, we spent one overpriced year in Fort Greene, and we've been in Bed-Stuy ever since, so... <laughs> So that's a, that's a little on the personal side. But yeah, I came to New York with AT&T. And that was my first job. I you know, had imagined I would work there for 20 or 30 years because everyone works at AT&T for 20 and 30 years mm. was my experience. But yeah, they moved me to New York, uh, which I guess was a mistake because I eventually was told that I needed to come back to Dallas and I had to resign. I was like, no, I'm in New York now. I can't, I can't go back. So after AT&T, I did some ad tech startup stuff. I had a stint at the IEP. I ran a trade desk at 360i, which is part of Dinsu. And then my last gig actually took me out to the Bay Area for a few years at EA, the video game company, and ran global media for them for a couple years, and then transitioned into a new role, which was really stitching together measurements, audiences, contents, insights, recommendations, etc., across the full portfolio. And what's my title? It was, uh, oh, the the global head of marketing intelligence. So mm. uh, yeah, but that was it. I left my job in March and was really excited to travel the world with my family. And uh, I guess I'm still waiting <laughs> to be able to do that. My timing was terrible. But uh, in the meantime, I've been just doing some consulting, uh, working with the WFA on all things related to diversity, working with some friends in the space around talent and people in diversity as well. So you know, just been out here. That's awesome. Yeah, you've got tremendous experience. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. I'd like to explore that with you. But tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, where you grew up and and your family. How do you think the different places you've lived and and all of your experiences has impacted who you are today? Yeah, great question. I mean, I grew up, both of my parents, you know, again, from the South, both of them grew up poor and were you know, their households placed a really big emphasis on education. My mom 
actually was Miss Black Teen Oklahoma and won a scholarship to the college off of that. And that's where she met my father. And she graduated with an accounting degree and later decided she wanted to do marketing. And she convinced my dad to go back to school to get an MBA. So both of them were going to school part-time and working when I was little. And I used to get to go to some of their MBA classes. But education's always been a really big thing in my family. And I think my parents are from the generation, you know, we work as hard as we can. We put it all on the line. We sacrifice because we want you to have more opportunity than we were ever exposed to. And, you know, the expectation that you're going to go and crush it and do much better than we did in life and really carry on that, that generational legacy. I think, you know, similar to some people in my generation, but also dissimilar to a lot is, you know, I grew up with very strong pro-Black parents, but I grew up in all white spaces. So, you know, for us, the best schools meant the white schools, the best neighborhoods meant the white neighborhoods. So we would, you know, have every Sunday, we'd drive 45 minutes or so back to back to our old neighborhoods and go to church with all of our people. And that's where our friends were. And that's where we hung out. And then we, you know, crossed town to go to the better school district in a place where my parents, you know, we're really trying to have the best exposure and opportunities for me. And I think, I think those things were meaningful in a lot of ways, in a way that, you know, I guess what we're using now is like the way that I'm able to code switch uh, much more fluently. But I think it's, it's also got its, you know, its dark side or its backlash, which are things that we've been talking about as an industry and definitely as a country this summer which is, you know, what's the line between professional code switching and internalized racism and internalized white superiority and white supremacy? So I think there's a lot to unpack there. And, you know, it's just, it's crazy to look back, you know, each generation has a very specific struggle or a specific challenge that they're trying to solve for. And the way that they do that impacts the viewpoints of the next generation. And it kind of goes on and on in that way. And I think, in this moment, it feels like we've kind of come back in a, in a circle to the 60s. Like some of the things that we're talking about now, we really thought we secured like the right to vote or the right to have access to education or all of those through legislation in the 60s. And, and here we are after most of that's been undone, really facing those same things. So I've been, I've been spending the pandemic talking to my dad almost daily about, you know, what was your thought process, you know, when you had to make these decisions? Because I have a son who's five now, mm. you know, how did you make the decision between, you know, putting me in a culturally safe place versus a place that you thought was maybe superior academically or mm. offered me different experiences? What conversations did you have with your parents about race? And, you know, really, I think getting reeducated and becoming much more familiar with the things he had to deal with, because I find myself in that same position <laughs> you know, 60 years later. Yeah, I, I want to explore that for a minute because I think it's fascinating how you tied that together, you know, for this moment we're in now. How do you choose and how do you figure out what to pass on to your family now, yeah. right? And you yeah. look to the to the past, to our elders, you look to to folks there. Like, how do you, how do you work through that process and in, in, in sort of teaching your own family and others? Oh, yeah, man. It's so difficult and I really... I don't think there's a right answer. When I was pregnant with my son, I had like 
someone who really, I think, was just an angel put on earth for my birth. But um, this woman who taught my birthing class, and she would, you know, always remind everyone, like, parenting isn't about you. Don't take your issues out on your kid. And I try to really think about that a lot because a lot of parenting decisions that I've observed or that come as a default from me are made out of fear based on my own experiences. So, you know, I could say it's really important to me that my son goes to a black school because I didn't get to do that. And the things that I had to hear or endure or not speak about because I went to a white school, you know, I don't want him to have that. But really that's looking through the experience of my own lens. And that's not, I would say like being expansive and thinking about how he could have the possibility for a different worldview. So I really try to take it one day at a time. I try to listen to my son as much as possible and listen to him tell me what he's thinking about or what he needs or what he's interested in. And I also, you know, I try to ask myself before I make a decision if it's a decision that I'm making out of fear. And I think that's something that we don't talk about enough because a lot of times, especially Black mothers, we're stuck in the place of wanting our kids to live to be adults and really trying to make very limiting decisions out of preserving their lives and keeping them very safe. And when you teach a kid over and over that that's how they make a decision is what will cause the least amount of harm or what is less likely for them to be harmed, you know, that's a mindset that's hard to get out of. So I I try to parent by confronting my own fears. And I try, I really do. I try to talk to my parents a lot to pick up the lessons that I didn't learn when I was younger. And I try to get into their heads to understand how did they make the decisions they made? Because I know how those impacted me and kind of, you know, that gives me more information about, about how I might want to approach it with my son. But Man, it's so tough. It's so tough every day. Yeah, totally know what you're saying. I mean, both Eric and I are, are parents as well, too, of younger kids and sort of living that experience with you. I want to talk about sort of the other side of this, too, right, which is the business side and, and, and the marketing side. And, and I know that you've written about this before and you do speaking on this topic as well. I mean, what's the role that brands should be playing and everything that's going on right now in our country from a social and racial perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is really hard to overstate the importance of brands or the leadership position that they have in our society. Two years ago, when I first started working with the WFA, which is the World Federation of Advertisers, I started working with them on a more progressive diversity agenda that specifically talked about race. And we had an event in Portugal and I did like, you know, this fun presentation about how marketing can change the world for good. And really this presentation was just commercials from my childhood and kind of the narrative about what was going on in the world at the time. And for brevity, I think the, the most famous one is that Cheerios Super Bowl ad that was a mixed family. And two things. One, it was, I think, maybe the first time there was a mixed family in the Super Bowl. But second, I remember very specifically that this was at the beginning of, of brands posting their ads on YouTube before the Super Bowl aired mm-hmm. um, to try to get people excited for the commercial. And that was one of the first times that they had to 
disable comments in an ad because people were, you know, making threats or, or whatever, whatever. And it's just wild that not that much later, I mean, we would think people are crazy for doing something like that, you know? And I think both the fact that brands are very aspirational in our culture and we use brands to communicate things about ourselves or communicate what, you know, our aspirational selves. And second, the sheer amount of money that is put behind brand messaging. I mean, it's it, not in a negative way, but it's brainwashing. You know, you get the same message over and over again in every format across every screen that really does shift culturally what we think is normal or weird or good or bad or acceptable. So, you know, to some extent, when I hear brands say, you know, no, this is kind of political, this isn't us, I mean, that doesn't really fly. If you're putting out messaging, you're in the game. Now, you can decide which side you want to be on. You can decide how far to go on either side, but, but you can't not be in the game. Oh, yeah. And I think consumers now more than ever are dictating to brands that you have no choice but to be in the game. Because I think if there's one thing we've seen in 2020 that will be a trend moving forward is I think more and more consumers are choosing to spend dollars with companies that align with their beliefs, whether that be social or racial injustices or environmental, so on and so forth. And so I think what's been encouraging for me is I think more and more consumers are now recognizing the power that they have where they put dollars and, and are dictating some of these changes. Yeah. And I think we also need to remember that that goes both ways. I mean, in our industry, I think we get trapped a lot into thinking from like a big city coastal perspective. And (laughs) we think we're the norm and and we're not. Uh, You know, for everyone who really loves what's happening at Ben and Jerry's, there are families who are stockpiling Goya because they couldn't be more proud. So, Mm. you know, that that goes on, on both sides of any discussion. I think more than us seeing brands being financially rewarded or punished is more news outlets and other voices being willing to engage in the conversation. And my hope is that that brings a level of transparency. So, you know, maybe we don't shut down fictitious brand X because everyone at that brand is really racist. But if we can have a discussion about what's happening in that boardroom and what they're really about and how they act, I can make a more informed decision. And, you know, people are going to be how they're going to be. We will have people on all sides of every issue. But I, I think what's really important to me is the transparency and understanding yeah, what a brand truly represents and and if they walk that talk inside their own hallways as well. Do you think we're getting there in terms of the transparency? I think, I mean, I think we're closer than we have ever been. I think we took really, really big steps this summer that probably would have taken years otherwise. But yeah, we have a lot of work to do. And I mean, it takes... It takes a village. And, you know, I try to talk to a lot of the trades in our industry to really like just keep the issue, you know, in print yeah. and, and try to keep that conversation alive. And I think that's a big piece of it as well. And Belinda, I'm curious, you mentioned the trades and you mentioned our industry. What are some ways that 
the industry can improve and how can that change start to happen a lot more? Hmm. I love the idea of there being some kind of public employee engagement or belonging survey that we use for the entire industry. Just like a little bit like Glassdoor, but taking it to the next level, which is employees being able to be really transparent about the experiences that they're having within the industry and using that as a a lever of accountability to get people to consistently care about how they manage people and how they manage talent. There are a million things we could do. We could volunteer. We could do initiatives. We could work with ad council. Like All of that is great. We don't get to those really good ideas without having diverse decision makers around the table. So when I talk about diversity inside of brands and inside of companies, I want diversity for people who write checks. I want diversity for people who greenlight work. I want diversity for people who pick who's starring in the commercial or the movie or whatever it is. Like That is where it's important to have diversity, not just as an overall percentage of your workforce. And if we get to that and you combine that with um, workplaces that are either inclusive or safe enough where those people can be empowered to contribute and to make meaningful change to the work. That's how we get to better representation. That's how we get out of tropes and stereotypes in our work. That's how we get to more accessible products. That's how we get to new services that we haven't imagined for underserved populations. I mean, it, I think it really, really starts there. So, I mean, what I would love to see and what I definitely champion and hope to continue to do so, and especially through through the work we're doing with WFA, is really a focus on like, what does your internal culture look like? And how does that either accelerate or hinder diversity and inclusion? And that's, that's the starting point, And that's the most important. Linda, you know, I, I want to ask you about some of your experiences as a black woman. I have to imagine you've handled issues of discrimination at some point. Can you share with us an experience and and actually how you handled it as well? <laughs> somebody somebody asked me this question, but in the form of seeking advice. Oh. I was on a panel for for a brand that I won't name, but one of their employees said, like, well, you know, what do you do when you when you face discrimination or microaggressions or whatever it is? And my answer was like, man, I don't know. I've tried everything <laughs> and, and nothing is like, you know, I've never I've never found like ding ding ding, this is the best way to deal with it. And there are so many things. I think the first thing I want to say, just for people who look like me who will listen to this is man, I just think about all the time and stress and like hair falling out I could have saved if I would have been able to understand what gaslighting is. <laughs> like there, I've had so many experiences where you feel like, you know, this feels like I'm being treated a little different or that comment felt a little off or why am I always in this position? Or why do people think I'm so angry? People tell me, not that I'm angry a lot, but people say I'm opinionated. And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a human. I'm like fucking breathing and talking. Of course I'm opinion. Like, what does that mean? Mm. But I think, you know, we are really brought up to internalize little comments like that and think that we need to adjust our style or think that we need a coach or think, 
that it's something that we lack. Mm. And, you know, it wasn't till I got to a place in my career where I was really dealing with the most senior levels of the company. And I realized, oh, no, 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 no. This is something deficient within you that you're projecting to Mm. me. And I don't have to receive that. Mm -hmm. And it took me a really, really long time to learn that. Because I think as you're starting your career and you're making your way up, you think, oh, that person is more senior to me. They know more. Or that person is my boss. They're really just looking out and trying to help me. Once you continue to ascend in your career and you look around and you're like, you know, these people are just like me and maybe not as talented. And you're critiquing me because, you know, you feel insecure about what you're doing. And that's a you issue. And I don't have to take that on. I don't have to put that into my day. So I think for me, you know, a lot of the, when I hear discrimination, a lot of the things that I think about are really small things that we're trained Mm -hmm. to think are wrong with us. And I reject that now fully. Mm -hmm. I think, I think the other things like, you know, there are some, I've worked with a lot of I've worked in a lot of entertainment businesses. I've worked in a lot of creative businesses and other businesses that are more male-driven or male-dominated. And I just think about when people are inconsistent or imprecise in their feedback or their behavior, that usually penalizes Black women more than anyone. When you go into a creative meeting and people are talking about style or word choice or delivery... That's completely subjective. And they're looking for people who act and speak like them. And so the people who are most othered in that room are most vulnerable to that criticism. And what can you say? You can't defend someone saying, I don't like your style. (laughs) You know, like there's nothing tangible there that you can have a conversation about. So, you know, for me, I think a lot of times it has really shown up as, you know, these small innocuous things that, that people are trying to convince me are wrong or need to change because they are not a mirror image of them. And I reject that. And I think we should all reject that and we should all question that. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you very much. You mentioned sort of learning uh, a lot from your parents and turning back to them, you know, for how to handle situations today. You know, I, I want to ask you about some of your mentors or, or, or folks in your life that have impacted you and helped guide you. <laughs> and maybe you're still doing that today. Who are some of those folks? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, ooh, this is tough because I've already, <laughs> I've already exhausted the parents. Yes, they show up. They go hard. Actually, my husband is a is a big mentor for me because, I mean, he has to hear about every single thing that happens at any job <laughs> that I work. But he's so it's so great to have his perspective sometimes when I'm stressed about something, and he can just break it down very clearly and say why it does or doesn't make sense. And I think it's really important to have that balance. I've had I'm going to use air quotes. I've had mentors in the industry and. My own personal experience has been, again, that when you say the word mentor, people come in with a stance of they have something to teach you and they are going to help you change yourself. And I don't like that model. Mm. So, you know, I see the value of having friends. I see the value of networking. I have so many people that have been really helpful to me, but I try not to give my power away to people in the form of mentor-mentee who are in my same industry. 
because, you know, there, there's nothing deficient within me. I want to be in relationship with people. I want to be in conversation with people, but I don't need someone who's on a different rung of this ladder to teach me what I can tweak about myself to get where they are. We should all have different dreams and there should be more than one way to get to the top. So, you know, from an industry perspective, kind of shaky on that, but really I, I just look to the people in the relationships in my life to help me be more balanced and I think more informed and more thoughtful. Hmm. What are you uh, reading or types of content you're consuming these days to stay informed either industry or culturally? Yeah. Oh, because I took a year off to travel as when travel shut down, I then said, you know what, I'm going to write a book. Then I realized that was probably a bigger project that I was ready for. But I've been reading a lot of memoirs to try to think about, you know, what a book project for myself would look like. And there's just so much good stuff in the world. Um, I'm looking at my bookcase now. First of all, Citizen is, I read through that and that's a book I could read only three pages at a time because I felt like I wrote it because the experiences that she described are places and things that we've all felt and been. And I cannot even tell you what a like warm, validating, praise dance course of amens it is to read something that's, that is your experience reflected back to you. I think I've really been nourished by that during this time. So Citizen would recommend, I, I went back and read a lot of Angela Davis and Maya Angelou. So a lot of memoir, lots of things like that. Um, I try to balance it out with just random weird podcasting that gives my mind like challenges to think about. I've been listening to a lot of Reply All and going down the rabbit hole of like their tech desk investigations, which I found really interesting. And yeah, and, you know, just getting, getting into, I, I guess, more like food for thought or kind of techie podcast stuff. Keep that part of me alive. Gotcha. Gotcha. What advice would you give anyone that's either looking to start a career in marketing or looking to, to join a brand? Mm. Mm. I would say to the extent that you're able to, because this does always change. I mean, really, really get clear with yourself before you walk in anyone else's door. I would say really take some time to think about your intentions, what you want out of this experience, what you hope to contribute to the experience, things that you hope you will learn, and use that as a place that you can come back to over and over. I've been in marketing and advertising my whole career, so I can't say how it is in other industries, but I will say what I've experienced is I mean, everyone in this industry has such bad shiny new object syndrome. You can just spend your whole life on that hamster wheel before you look up and you think, wait a second, like, where am I going? Why is this meaningful? What am I doing? And I think having that anchor that you can define yourself, that you can come back to, or having someone in your life who can remind you of that or who can be that for you is really important. And, and outside of that, have fun. It's a great industry. It's really fun. It's, I think it's exciting to be in. I just try to, to still <laughs> stay somewhat grounded in, in all of that movement. 
I hear you on that. I know Eric agrees as well, too. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Fun question. I love asking every guest we have on the podcast. Give us your top three apps that you use on your phone, but you can't name email, calendar, or text messaging. Okay. Well, I don't use email or calendar on my phone. So. All right. There you go. Fine. (laughs) Oh, I don't know if I want to tell you my top three. (laughs) Okay. Number one is CoStar, which is an astrology app that uh, takes your entire natal chart and uses it to spit out like semi-customized astrology recommendations. But I screenshot that app almost every day and text it out to friends like, this is crazy. (laughs) Um, Let's see. I don't know, because browser's not an app. I don't... Hold on. Let's, Let's... Let's open the phone. Let's solve let's, this challenge. Let's consult the device. <laughs> <laughs> let's get let's get to the record of truth here. Yeah. Um, oh, this is probably super lame, but actually, number two, if not the actual number one, is my notes app. This is where I write down all of my ideas for businesses, for T-shirts that I want to make, and for dishes that I want to cook. So, all right. Keep track of my life there. Um, oh, before the pandemic, I'm looking at my Fly Delta app and I'm really, <laughs> really feeling a sense of loss. <laughs> RIP. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that I, I'm, oh, here we go. BGO, WBGO, which is Jazz 88. So, yeah. top ones. All right, now I have to ask another question. What's the next t shirt you're making? Oh, it's very good. It is a little scandalous and I may be sued for it. So I'm not quite sure if I want to tell people that I'm the maker or if I'm just going to buy one for everyone I know for Christmas and get people to wear it and swear not to say I made it. So it's, it's, oh. it's got some copyright material on it. Well, I'll just leave it there. We don't want any of our guests getting sued. So we'll leave it at that. <laughs> and if you were wondering, Belinda, I'm a 2X. You guys are going to love this one. I'll I'll write it down. I'll get it to you. Well, Linda, thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing your experiences and insights. It's been awesome. We want to be able to allow our audience to communicate with you. They're often curious and want to stay in touch. What are some ways that they can find you? Oh, um, I am. I mean, for now, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm also kind of in a rant against LinkedIn because they are muting the reach of Black people who are talking about diversity on that platform. But for now, you can still find me there. I'm on Twitter, which is BJS Tech, which are my initials. And that's really it, man. I just try to live in life. If you're in bed and you're eating good Italian food at Saragina, you can find me there always. There we go. Awesome. Well, thanks again to our sponsor, Publishers Clearinghouse, the leading media and commerce company serving America's heartland for supporting this podcast. And you can find more episodes where you find all of your audio and video. Just search Minority Report Podcast and look for the logo. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>